On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Today on BASIC, executive producer of The Walking Dead, Gail Ann Hurd. Well, we were a little skeptical at first, and Frank Darabont uh, was very skeptical because he said, I, I, I don't see us coexisting with Mad Men. It's like, yeah, I just love Mad Men now. Let me watch that show with zombies. I think it walks a fine line between hope and as long as you're alive, there's hope. Uh, and also the fact that it really is about moral and ethical choices. Each character has to make those choices. There is no such thing as, as black and white in the show. Everything is, everything's a shade of gray. And I think that everyone wants to believe that they can be a hero. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Basic, the official podcast of the unofficial history of cable television. I'm Doug Herzog, former TV executive, and I have to admit, Negan still scares the shit out of me. And I'm Jen Cheney, TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine, and I still miss Shane. Jen, today we are joined by Gail Ann Hurd, who is uh, the executive producer of The Walking Dead, which holds the title of the highest rated show ever on cable television. Yeah, that's right. It's run for 11 gory seasons and is set to wrap up later in 2022. And it was arriving in the middle of like the basic cable peak premium prestige drama era. But somehow the zombie apocalypse show just eclipsed them all in viewership. Yeah, you know, I was never and I still not a big fan of horror or even a genre guy, but I was a really big fan of the show. Uh, I got bitten and uh, then I turned and, you know, how about you, Jen? I did. I, I was really into it when it started. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was the kind of show that just hooks you in right from the beginning, even if you didn't know the graphic novel or the comics. It's really fun. So let's take a dive into the zombie apocalypse with Gail Ann Hurd and stay tuned afterwards as Jen and I break it all down for you. I guess the first question I wanted to ask you is, obviously, you you really got started producing, obviously, a lot of James Cameron's films. Uh, you No, you I consider he directed <laughs> your films. films. <laughs> okay, I like that. All right. Um, I hired him. So that's why it, uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was the assistant production manager of Battle Beyond the Stars, and I brought him on board, and he became the art director. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. So, I mean, were you always someone who was interested in what I'll refer to very generally as genre um, film and television, meaning like things with sci-fi elements or horror elements? Yes, always. When when I was young, I read science fiction, fantasy, and horror. That was always my genre, even before it became my profession. Okay. And, you know, as Jen mentioned, you know, you made your name. I mean, the first time I ever heard your name was certainly through feature films. How did you make your way into the television side of things? Well, I think if you are a producer and you want to find the best home for a particular piece of content, you don't decide in advance that you're only going to do features. When I came across The Walking Dead, I realized that it was was essentially a road show, followed a number of characters. There was no way to do it as a feature film. Mm -hmm. And as it turned out, 
the creator of the comic book, Robert Kirkman, agreed. Mm -hmm. So when you say there was no way to do it, just because it's such a sprawling story, it would it would be too hard to tell it in a like two hour time period. It would be impossible. I mean, it's an ongoing comic book series. You know, you can't really tell one chapter and understand the number of characters that are introduced. Uh, And in a feature, you have to limit it really to a single hero or anti-hero. And in this case, with with an ensemble cast, it was really a much better format to do it on TV. Mm Mm-hmm. How did you first come into contact with the graphic novel and the the the, the material? I read comic books. Do you? And, um, and I remember one of my colleagues put it on my desk and I read, I read it and said, wow, this is fantastic. I continue to read it. And then I called to check on the rights and found out that they weren't available initially. Hmm. So it was upon further reflection a few years later that I called again. And at that point, the rights had become available. So when you went to, I guess, pitch this to different networks, I mean, where, aside from AMC, were there other places you approached and what was the kind of response you received? Uh, well, the, the interesting thing is that AMC contacted my company and said that our most successful block of programming is not what you think. It's actually Fear Fest, which is when they mm. programmed the top science fiction horror films um, in the two weeks leading up to Halloween. And they already knew that they were looking for elevated genre to launch during that time. So they asked my company if we had anything, and we said, what about The Walking Dead? At the same time, um, HBO was interested but literally, we, we sold them the idea of this in the first meeting. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. And that was to my pal, Joel Stillerman? It was indeed to Joel. That's, 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 that's pretty great. You know, it's so funny you mentioned what AMC told you about their programming and the ratings and everything. Because, of course, at the time The Walking Dead got there, it was best. AMC was best known. was getting all the press from Mad Men and Breaking Bad and, you know, these, these sort of uh, prestige dramas. Uh, but uh, And they did pretty great ratings, um, but not the best ratings, um, as some of the genre stuff did. And then, of course, you came along and really broke all the records and, and sent it into a, a, a different stratosphere altogether. What did it feel like sort of coming into AMC in those days and and bringing this big genre project, you know, at a place that I, I think it started probably to collect some awards around then, and uh, uh, I would guess, uh, for Mad Men and Breaking Bad? Well, we were a little skeptical at first, and Frank Darabont uh, was very skeptical because he said, I, I don't see us coexisting with Mad Men. It's like, yeah, I just loved Mad Men now. Let me watch that show with zombies. But once again, AMC had already cultivated a horror genre audience. So they may not have necessarily been watching Mad Men, but they were eager to watch something like our show. But at the time, it was great because we were able to work very closely with them on how to launch the show, the best way to launch what would really make a difference with, with our audience. And it's something that both Frank Darabont and I know incredibly well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so, so our decision was that we should go to San Diego Comic-Con and cut together a promo and launch there. Mm-hmm. 
I was at that Comic-Con. I remember that very well. Uh, and I, you know, it's interesting. I feel like what you're just talking about speaks to how television was changing then and has completely changed now, which is people just want to watch the show they want to watch and where it is, is sort of immaterial. And like what other things are on that network, I feel like is sort of immaterial. Um, Cause a lot of times now they, people don't even know what network originated something they're watching it on Hulu or whatever. So it's just interesting that, that I understand why that thought process was, you know, if they're watching Mad Men, they're not going to watch this on here, but ultimately that I don't think that mattered at all. Yeah. And the thing that's really interesting, and I think, you know, Gail, you get a lot of credit for this rightfully. So certainly from my pal, Joel, you know, you talked about the cultivating the fan base and creating the fan base and this whole idea of fandom really, as a, I think it pertains to television, really exploded around The Walking Dead. And it's something you guys paid a lot of attention to, along with producing the show, was sort of cultivating the fans and doing all kinds of great things for them to keep them engaged. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, what a lot of people don't know is I actually was the head of marketing for New World Pictures, which is Roger Corman's company. Mm -hmm. So we distributed a lot of exploitation films, a lot of genre films, and I came to know and love the audience. I'd been to Comic-Con before The Walking Dead many, many, many (laughs) times. I would even go when I didn't have a film or a TV series to promote. And you can get to know the fans and you get to know that they love these properties. They're not like your typical critic. They have such a deep and powerful connection to a piece of intellectual property that they want it to be wonderful, but they're afraid it won't be. So from the beginning, we realized, okay, we've just cast Andrew Lincoln as Rick Grimes, as Sheriff Rick Grimes. And boy, they're going to be concerned if the only thing they're aware of that he's been in, because he's a British actor, is Love Actually. <laughs> <laughs> Where he was the, the guy with the with the big cue cards. Yep. Um, so it was very important. AMC agreed that we release a still that we'd taken uh, on set that laid their minds uh and concerns at ease so that uh, so they could just put that behind them and, and and i also would constantly scan the fan boards right to see what people's concerns were because they're they're legitimate concerns so we always made sure that we were ahead of you know we didn't you don't want to be you know closing the barn door after the horse is out. You you want to respond as quickly as possible and you want to allay those fears. So so we did that as much as we could. And we we really paid a lot of attention to the first promo piece that we screened at, at Comic-Con. Walking Dead premiered what year? It premiered in 2010. So that's kind of, you know, at the modern age of social media. And so I'm assuming social media played a, a role in how you would interact with your fans and hear from them in a way that TV shows weren't necessarily able to do prior to that. So. Well, I'm not on Facebook. I'm only on Twitter. Right. Mm -hmm. But yes, I mean, it's, it's immediate feedback and you also have to realize that it doesn't always necessarily represent the fan base. So I would go to the superhero hype boards which, uh, you know, seems very quaint now, but that was an important source for me of, of what people's concerns were, what they were excited about. 
And I always felt it was important to um, to try to be accessible. And uh, luckily, we ended up with a cast that was so excited about being accessible to the fans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's another thing. I mean, you can tell with whether it's Star Wars or Marvel or DC, the actors that are accessible to the fan base who go to Comic-Con, who meet them afterward, who will go to fan conventions, they, they make a huge difference because that deepens the audience's appreciation. And it's also something that the right actor gets a great deal out of. You know, the way that, you know, a rock star goes, you know, and, and plays a, a, a big arena and they have an interaction with the fans. Well, most TV and film actors don't have that. And once you've experienced it and that love and that passion for the role that you're bringing to life, you know, once you've experienced that, there's no going back. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well... I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. (laughs) Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, (laughs) oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon. 
Acon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. So you mentioned now Frank a couple times, and he ended up exiting the show pretty early on in the in the show's what became a long lifetime and amidst some controversy etc is there anything you could tell us about how and why that happened or how you guys were how you figured out to, how to move on um, after frank left you know that is really between him and amc right Luckily, mm-hmm. it's been resolved to everyone's satisfaction but um it was it's always tough when you're in the middle of a season and someone departs but he was gracious. Everyone was gracious about it and and told the cast and the crew, listen, continue on, um, do your best, and don't let this in any way stymie the show or reduce it, its quality. Right. Mm-hmm. We all feel a, a real commitment to the fans. So, you know, you, you just, you know, you, you've got to put on the show. It's show mm-hmm. business. I'm curious, you know, obviously you can't do a good zombie show without some gore and some uh, gross stuff happening. Uh, over the years, were there any things that you tried to do that AMC pushed back on? Like, what was that negotiation like in terms of what you could show, how violent you could be? Well, they, they have, AMC is with all networks and have standards and practices. And we had those discussions beforehand and they seemed reasonable. So, you know, there were, I, you know, I won't, I won't go into the whole thing, but it was very specific in terms of, especially editing. So, so we had very specific protocols vis-a-vis editing mm-hmm. and also huge kudos to Greg Nicotero and the incredible team at Can Effects who created all of the walkers, all of those practical effects from the very, very beginning. But something interesting is, you know, up until recently, we shot on Super 16 film. Mm-hmm. And we did so because we did camera tests early on. And, uh, you know, we used digital cameras, we used 35, and we realized that the best look for the show we could actually achieve on, on Super 16. And at that time, in 2010, the digital cameras made everything look green. So knowing Mm. that we were filming in Atlanta, which was going to be very green, and 
the green would then be cast onto the the makeup, which is we were looking we were looking to go more sort of gray uh, chiaroscura than um, than green. So mm-hmm. that was why we made the decision to shoot on Super Sixteen. Hmm, that's interesting. Show took off so quickly. Do you remember that moment when you were like, "Oh my God, we have we have a hit. This is a hit show." Uh, do I remember the no- moment? No, I don't know that I remembered it. As with anything, you just hope you're going to get a second season. <laughs> right. You know, um, it's it's hard to to create more context because that just means a lot more a lot more work. Our first season was only six episodes, so we had to we had to gear up very quickly. And uh, you know, I believe our our order at that point was either twelve or thirteen for the next season. But it was it was exciting because. You know, most of, not all, but most of the cable networks and the broadcast networks had had turned down the show. Right. I think I mentioned this to you the first time uh, you and I chatted, Gail. You know, I remember Joel Stillerman, the, the executive who bought the show at AMC, telling me about The Walking Dead. And I was a fellow TV executive at the time. And I can remember thinking to myself, hmm, zombies, huh? Okay. Good luck with that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, I mean, you know, uh, you know, as you know, it's uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, everything happens for a reason. You had a you had a great idea and you sold it to the right network and the, the right people who knew uh, how to help you, you know, a, a achieve your uh, your goals. But, you know, you started and became I, you started in the, you know, the end of what I would call the the great cable era. And I think Walking Dead is probably the last certainly the biggest cable show of all time and i think maybe the last great cable hit of all time and by the time the run ended we were all in the midst of a streaming era right where everybody's now turning to streamers did that did you feel that transition as you were making the show that you were on cable people were beginning to migrate to streaming did that affect how you produced the show looked at the show felt about the show I have a different take on it entirely. Oh, let's go. <laughs> I, I don't think that serialized content would have developed the audience that it did without streaming because mm-hmm. we were picked up uh, on Netflix. In addition to that, AMC so wisely would, on Sunday nights when we aired, would air the previous episode immediately preceding it. Because if you have a serialized show, and you miss an episode that you can't ever see again, at least for a long, long time, Right, you're going to get disengaged from the storytelling. You're not going to understand what's happened. I mean, you know, someone may have died in the episode. You won't know about it. Right. And I honestly think that, that the fact that people were able to tell their friends or their family members, you got to watch the show. The Walking Dead and people would say, oh, I hate zombies. I'm not going to watch that. And they said, just try a few. And if you can't, if you can't try a few, and if you can't, if there's no other opportunity other to, than to join mid-season, you're probably not going to to become a fan of that show. So I, I think that streaming helped a great deal. But at that point, it was primarily licensing of existing shows. That's right. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, how I, that's how I watched uh, Breaking Bad in the beginning. On uh, I didn't see it originally on AMC. I think I started watching it on on Netflix originally. Yeah, a lot of people had that yeah. experience. I think. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there was a period of time, I think, where networks were afraid of serialized television. And this is the part where I bring up Lost. Uh, I I would like to acknowledge that I've gone 25 minutes in this podcast without mentioning Lost. (laughs) Thank you. But that was one of the concerns that I think existed then is like, nobody's going to watch the show with all this like mythology and so on. And they obviously were wrong about that. But I'm, I'm curious because I'm a TV critic and I, I work at Vulture and we're constantly having internal discussions about how shows are rolled out now. There's obviously still the once a week model that some networks and streamers use. Some people, Netflix dumps all their shows at once, all their episodes rather. I feel like with serialized storytelling, while you're quite right that having the streaming there as a backup, like it's more exciting when it does come once a week. I feel like it lends something to the conversation. Whereas if everybody watches all the episodes at once, you talk about it for a couple of days and then it's like, you're on to the next thing. But I'm curious what your, your take is on, on rollout. I absolutely agree. I mean, I love appointment TV. I like to be able to catch up, but I, I like waiting for, you know, whether it's the girl from Plain, Plainville or the Gilded Age, you don't get one until the next week. Mm-hmm. It also allows everyone to talk about the show that they watched this week. They may not have watched it at the same time, but there's a much bigger discussion about a particular episode of a show that could get other people engaged. As opposed to if you binge them all over a weekend, you may talk about it, but it's not going to be as relevant to someone else who, who hasn't made the commitment to, you know, binge six or eight episodes over a weekend. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. That's how I feel. Thank you for uh, supporting my opinion. <laughs> so, or maybe talk- it's just because we're we're that's the the formula we're used to. Well, that's you know, true. That, but, but, but my daughter's thirty, and and she also likes the anticipation, uh, and the buildup to ne- having that next episode drop. Yeah, well, I mean, I've seen some younger, very young people on social media being like. Oh, I like the way they're rolling these, uh, you know, Obi-Wans out once a week. More shows should do this model. I'm like, that's how it always was. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we've been talking about uh, your your ensemble cast a little bit. And so I have sort of a two-pronged question. One is, that's a lot to manage, a lot of actors uh, on an ongoing basis. And so my one question is, how are you able to keep them all engaged for so long? And s- several of them went all the way through. Um, and then the other is, how do you also you sort of address your fan base as you're killing cast members off? Well, I think the the first thing is there's something to be said for finding the best number one on the call sheet, which which essentially means your star. Right. Um, the, the even if though it's an ensemble, there's always someone who has that you know number one on the call sheet, and and Andy Lincoln took that responsibility so that he wrangled, he wrangled the cast. These people bonded so closely, all of us bonded so closely that we would always spend time together, even when we didn't have to, even, you know, when, uh, when we weren't shooting. And, uh, you know, we started having these dead dinners. So when we would kill a character off, those of us who are executive producers obviously knew sometimes it would change during, um, during the season, but mostly we knew as obviously AMC knew when we did the the pitch out of the, of the upcoming season. Sometimes things change for any number of reasons, but, um, 
you know, we, we often didn't want to tell cast members too early, but once they knew we would, we would plan a dead dinner. And, um, you know, that actually bonded people together really quite closely. Obviously with fans, it's a different story. Right. Fans haven't read the script. Fans weren't invited to the dead dinner. And it was really, really tough. I mean, in, in some cases, uh, it was from the comic book. That was easier because other fans who were fans of the comic book would explain, oh, no, no, like Shane Walsh, the character that John Bernthal plays. Even though we changed his death up a little bit, that was always about the time that, that he would go. Other characters, not so much. And, and, and fans get very upset because they're so connected with these characters and they think because they know the comic book that we're going to follow it to a letter. But as Robert Kirkman said, it's not a blueprint. You know, it is, it's, you know, just sort of, we've got some guideposts, but it's not a blueprint. You know, luckily we don't kill, you know, six or seven of the lead characters off in one, in one fell swoop. You know, it's still, it's, it's, it's tough for everybody, people on set. And I think that's the difference also when you got a location show. When you're shooting right. away from almost everyone's home, the the you know band of brothers and sisters becomes even closer. If everyone gets to go home at night, I don't think it's quite the same. Right. Right. Well, to back up a minute, tell tell us what happens at a dead dinner. Yeah. Uh well, we first be before we were, you know, we were a uh target for Spoilers. Believe it or not, there was a time when we weren't. (laughs) (laughs) And we would have them at restaurants. You know, the person could pick their favorite restaurant and we'd go there and, you know, we'd all have great food and share stories and toast. And then, of course, people would notice that if all of us were out to dinner, someone was probably dying and they could probably figure out who. So, mm-hmm. uh, so we had to do them at, at people's homes that uh, mm-hmm. so we, we would rotate, um, various people's homes and we would, we would do them there, but it's really, it's a roast. It is an mm-hmm. absolute roast. So people tell stories. There's some crying. There's lots of hugging less so during COVID, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> no bloodshed or, or flesh eating or anything like that. No, no. We didn't invite any walkers to, right. the, to the dead dinner. Although some of the people that we toasted to had become walkers. Right. right. So it's so, sort of like going to your own funeral, kind of, a little bit. Yeah, that, that's it. Except you get to live on and, you know, have a productive career after you've left the show. Sidetrack here. I'm assuming I never thought just just now. This may be a dumb question, but was there like a whole side community of people who would play walkers all the time? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like a <Yeah>. subculture. <laughs> you know, it's it's really key because your eye will go to the one zombie that's not walking right, right, mm-hmm. or they're wearing glasses or they've got, you know, a bottle of water or something like that. <laughs> right. But but we had we had zombie school. And so Greg Nicotero, yeah, Greg Nicotero and his team would train them. And it was really an audition. So it seemed like a school, but there would be people who failed. So I guess it was school. (laughs) 
and they would give them an indication of of how to be a zombie, but each one, each person who brings a zombie to life has to personalize it and they have to stay in character. Wow. Zombie school. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> is there is there an, any actor that has been playing a walker for the entire run of the show? There have, been a, there have been a lot of people who have, you know, we'll, we'll change the, we'll change the costumes and we'll change some of the makeup, but we did have a, you know, some, some key people. And obviously when there were stunts involved, we had some key stunt players as well, bring them mm-hmm. to life. As we're recording this podcast, and please correct me if any of this information is wrong. Uh, the last, I guess, part three of season 11 still has to come, presumably in the fall, but I don't think there's been an announcement yet. It still is still to come. Okay. And if my math is right, either already in progress or being developed are, I think, five spinoffs. Is that right? I, you know, it, it changes daily. Okay. <laughs> well, that was my question is even when, you know, the flagship show and Walking Dead is, is over later this year, obviously you have these other spinoffs and ancillary shows. I mean, is there a, a limit to how many of those you can do or how many you want to do? I think it, it all boils down to the fans and what they respond to. At a certain point, you would have expected that Star Trek would have gotten all of them, but it hasn't. Right. right. So, uh, so I, you know, I, I, I don't see that there necessarily is is a limit. I think it all has to do with who the characters are, what stories we're telling, and not trying to repeat ourselves. So, is that something you're kind of actively thinking about? Is what you know, what other opportunities storytelling wise there might be? It's it's primarily Scott Gimple is the uh, the content king, okay, uh, and he's the the chief creative director of all things Walking Dead universe. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you ever have a favorite character or storyline that you'd be willing to share by not and not offend anybody? I think my favorite character is Michonne. Oh yeah, and I loved her. And I, I, I just, I mean, the idea, the introduction of her with her two pet zombies and, <laughs> you know, the katana sword, it just literally blew my mind I in the I, comic book and the way that Denai Guerrero brought her to life on the show. Yeah, it was a stunning visual to see that for the first time on the show. Yeah, I, was, I remember that. I was like, whoa. <laughs> whoa and, and i remember we we introduced her character the end of the second season on 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 herschel's farm right and then we really didn't get into and in fact at the time we hadn't cast Denai guerrera so that was played by an extra oh. and then uh and then we we then we cast Denai. as you're getting toward the end of the Walking Dead proper, the the flagship show, and how long it's lasted. Uh, what do you think explains the fandom around it and and the the interest in continuing to watch the show? Because you know it's not it's not the most hopeful show in the world. <laughs> you know, and especially when people are going through hard times in in real life, you might think that they n- wouldn't want to watch something like this, but clearly that's not the case. So, what do you ex- think explains the longevity of the show? First of all, I have to give the credit to Robert Kirkman because his comic book series is where it all started. And I think it walks a fine line between 
hope. And as long as you're alive, there's hope. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also the fact that it really is about moral and ethical choices. Each character has to make those choices. There is no such thing as, as black and white in the show. Everything is everything's a shade of gray. And I think that everyone wants to believe that they can be a hero. Mm-hmm. I think it, it, in terms of the, the fan base, because we, we don't have superheroes. These are all average people who have created their own family, the Walking Dead family, to survive this zombie apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why because there's a connection to the people. There's hope that if you can find your family, you can you can make it through. And in these times that we're living in, with so much negativity, you know, every time you turn on the news, uh, I think I'd much rather watch The Walking Dead. <laughs> So there's there's sometimes more hope there, uh, battling (laughs) battling the zombies. Look, I think on that note, that's a really great way to wrap it up. Thanks for that question, Jen. That was great. And and a great answer by our guest today, Gail Ann Hurd. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate having you on BASIC. Thank you for inviting me. So that was really an interesting conversation with Gail Ann Hurd. Yeah, I mean, she she's uh, really brings a lot of perspective to what goes on behind the scenes, you know, at the show. And I, I was just happy we didn't get splattered with blood and uh, didn't well, speak you know. for yourself. <laughs> didn't, didn't turn out to be a to be a zombie zombie mess. I, I I do think one of the interesting things about the show is that we talked about how incredible a fan base they had and what a passionate fan base they had and devoted fan base they had. I also thought the show and you're a TV critic, Jen, so. I'll let you actually take it up from here. But I actually thought the show sort of threaded a needle in that, you know, for a genre show, critics seem to like it and kind of give it thumbs up for the most part. I think that was true in the beginning when the show debuted and in, in the first few seasons. But I think at least critically, my sense is, uh, and I can only speak for myself, but just my sense in general was like, it wasn't talked about critically as much anymore because it had been on for so long. and you know, I felt like for me personally, it was kind of doing a lot of the same thing. Like, because it, it, it's not like the, the zombie apocalypse is going to be over. Right. Like, it's, it's, a never, right. it's a never anything. It's always going to be there. Right. They're never going right. to conquer it. Right. Right. So I think like for me, I watched it for a few seasons and then I just and part of it is just because there's so much TV period that I, right. I kind of fell off because there were so many other things happening. But I do think it was critically well received initially, but not like. It wasn't. Like, I don't think when the show goes off the air, finally, like, it'll be a, a thing, but it won't be a thing for critics in the same way that, like, The Sopranos going off the air. No, was, I get that. You no, know what it, I mean? it was, Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a prestige drama, but it was, uh, it was certainly, it's a, it's a very well executed one. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. And uh, I, I just felt like, you know, those shows, usually the critics, I find on, like, genre stuff or stuff that gets that popular, they just generally shit on. And, and mostly That's I thought critics were- true. <laughs> That is not true. All right. I don't want to, I don't want to paint broad generalizations about <laughs> TV critics. <laughs> um, but uh, it I feel was... like that was, you know what? I feel like that was true. Like years ago, I, I feel like, I mean, so many TV critics were um, 
super into Buffy, for example. I feel that's like right. that's a that's a formative show for a lot of yeah. people. So I feel like it's gotten certainly less snobby about genre stuff in the past 20 years than it used to be. I think that's yeah, I think that's true. So we've touched on this a little bit, I think, in the interview. Am I wrong? Was The Walking Dead sort of came in, you know, sort of as just ahead of streaming, but Mm -hmm. also with the rise of social media. And they did they had things like The Talking Dead, which I think was the first show of its kind for a for a scripted drama. Right. I think Bravo had already started doing that. Mm -hmm. Right. And and then there are also these like sort of recaps, which I'm sure the Vulture probably did. I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was Walking Dead, were they the sort of first show to usher all this stuff in? The, no, the, sir. The sort of, no. And you know where I'm going with this. Oh, where are you going? Oh, Lost. Lost. Oh, right, of course. Lost I, was I, first. Lost was that. doing all that stuff first. And in <laughs> fact, I didn't say this during the conversation, but my recollection was when Lost ended, a lot of people were really excited about The Walking Dead because, I mean, Lost had, again, like a Comic-Con kind of audience. And they were like, what are we going to watch now? And there was like, oh, they're making a Walking Dead show, which is another genre show big ensemble cast. I mean, obviously it's a different show, but it's different show, right? But I, I just remember that being a conversation like, okay, this is what we're all going to watch now. So well, it was good so that, timing. Yeah. Well, as I was say, so well to that end, then there was a little bit of a blueprint for the Walking Dead folks to sort of follow and yeah. and and cultivate and develop an audience, not unlike Lost did. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Did you watch Lost all the way through? Sir. <laughs> You know, you, you, know, you, you know, you're talking to the guy who never watched any Lost, I, right? If, if nothing else happens during this podcast, <laughs> I will get you to watch the show in its entirety. All right. Well, maybe I should start tonight. <laughs> he looks well, very skeptical. <laughs> but, well, I, 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 my, my oldest son it, uh, was and is a Lost fanatic, and uh, he still, I still get chided by him for having. I, I watched the pilot, and amazingly, never went back. I don't know. That's that makes no sense at all. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you why. No, no, I'll tell you why. I actually, I saw the pilot when it was a pilot, like, um, mm-hmm. I think on a VHS tape. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, before it went on the air. Yeah, yeah. Like just, I, I don't know, for some reason I never went back when, uh, when it went on the air, but my, everything in my house did stop um, on, what was the night, uh, what night was it on? Well, I think it started on Tuesdays, but it was Wednesdays for most of the run. Right. Including later on, there were, when my kid was in high school, they had Lost Club and they would all come oh. over here and turn off all the lights and nobody would say a word for an hour and they would Oh watch. my God. Yeah, yeah. I really need to talk to your son. Oh yeah. He's, he's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's well into it. All right. So maybe I'll get started on Lost this weekend. We'll see. Um, I hope you enjoyed uh, Gail Ann Hurd and hearing more about The Walking Dead. And Jen and I will see you next time on Basic. Bye. Basic is a Pantheon Media production in partnership with Sirius XM, hosted by Jen Cheney and Doug Herzog, produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer. Mixed, mastered, and music by Jerry Danielson. Edited by Zach Spisner. You can find Basic on Apple Podcasts, the Sirius XM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't Don't forget forget to follow follow the show so you you never miss an episode. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Were they shot? Were they shot? 
would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.